0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Bridget Dooling, Research Professor at the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center. We will discuss her draft article, Bespoke Regulatory Review. So welcome to the show, Bridget.
1: Thanks, Brian. I'm so glad to be here. I'm a super fan of your podcast.
0: Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Well, I'm a super fan of your article, which uh, I'm becoming, like my friend Emily Bremer will be pleased to learn, a totally regulation geek at this point. And I'm so excited to learn more about this area of law, which I know shamefully little about. And like I was saying pr- prior to our recording, like before I read your article, I, I must confess, I had never heard. Of The Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs before. So I was wondering for listeners who like me are regulatory newbies, if you could spend a little time just talking about what the office is and what it does. Yeah, I'd love to. Um,
1: In fact, the office has earned the moniker in the in the papers as being, quote, obscure, but powerful. (laughs) So, yeah, a lot of folks have not heard about this office, and it's my pleasure to be able to talk about it, particularly because I was a staffer there for over 10 years. Um, So my article centers on the relationship between this office called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs and the Independent Um, Agencies, So let's start and just get that out of the way. What is this office that we're talking about, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs? So just in terms of the governmental org chart, this office sits within the executive office of the president. So it's part of the executive branch. It staffs the president and his advisors on issues of regulatory and other policy areas. Um, it's inside of the Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, which is, of course, in the news this week because we just had the President's budget roll out yesterday. Um, but OIRA focuses not on agency budget matters, but mostly on agency regulatory matters. And then it also has responsibilities in areas of information policy which includes, for example, coordinating the statistical agencies in the United States. But OIRA is most publicly known for its regulatory role where it works with agencies like, um, you know, say FDA or CMS and the alphabet soup of government acronyms. But all the big agencies you hear about, Department of Education, Health and Human Services, anytime those agencies are getting ready to issue a new draft rule, OIRA runs a policy process with that agency to review their policy change before it goes out to the public. And that review covers three general areas. The first is OIRA's Technical Analytical Review, where OIRA uses its expertise in certain techniques of regulatory analysis. Perhaps the most well-known is the form of cost-benefit analysis that we apply to agencies in the U.S. regulatory system. OIRA also has technical skill in other tools as well, such as analyzing alternative regulatory approaches. Um, and then there's a handful of others as well. But that OIRA has its own substantive expertise that brings to bear on draft agency rules before they go out. OIRA also coordinates interagency review across the entire executive branch. So sometimes there are agencies that have overlapping jurisdiction with others. And the idea is that OIRA review allows for each agency to check in with its sister agencies before it proposes policy changes that will affect the other agencies as well. Um, And then the third component involves White House review, where OIRA is serving as um, the the White House coordinator for regulatory actions. And so here, OIRA is working with Um, the president's advisors in a whole host of different topic areas. So this could be domestic policy. This could be homeland security or national security. This could be, um, you know, drug uh, coordination policy. This could be about women and girls. Whatever the priorities of current White House is, um, AWIRA helps get agency proposals in front of these various White House advisors, and then coordinates the back and forth between the White House and the agency. So three very different hats that OIRA wears, um, but you can already probably get a sense for how it ended up being called both obscure and powerful.
0: How long has OIRA existed for? Sort of how big is it? Who staffs it? And like, do they bring in people from outside when they're doing these kinds of reviews? And if so, sort of how and why do they do that?
1: Yeah, OIRA is small. Um, I want to say the full time, you know, staff usually hovers around 50 people about half of which are considered to be desk officers that are who are working with the various agencies. So that was my role there for most of the time that I was there. I was called a desk officer, and I staffed uh, different agencies over the years. Um, one of the best things about working at OIRA for me personally was the ability to switch the policy content of what I was working on over time, um, so I covered K-12 education, higher education, Medicare, uh, the private health insurance market, including the Obamacare years, um, as well as FDA pharmaceuticals, Veterans Affairs, all sorts of different topics. Um, So it's really a very small staff covering um, all, all domestic policy in the regulatory space. Um, and they do supplement they do supplement their expertise with uh, rotations from other agencies. Folks will come in and do you know short or long stints with the office just to supplement the uh, the in-house expertise. it's um it's designed to be actually pretty interdisciplinary. I'm trained as an attorney. Uh, but I, I was one of the few attorneys doing this work. Uh, it tends to be a broad ray, array of disciplines, including economists, um, engineers, statisticians, scientists, so people from you know, really different technical training, bringing their skills to bear
0: in the course of this review. So you mentioned earlier cost-benefit analysis, which I imagine a lot of listeners will have heard of. Before, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more, sort of, about what that means in practice, especially from the perspective of OIRA, like reviewing agency action, and why cost-benefit analysis has become increasingly important in recent years.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So just in terms of how OIRA does its job, um, OIRA isn't actually coming up with the cost-benefit analysis itself. The way it it works is that an agency takes a crack at drafting its own analysis, and then that's what is sent to OIRA for review along with um, the other materials for the rule. Um, so when a OIRA review happens, it happens in a, in a pretty brief window in the life cycle of a rule. Uh, the executive order under which OIRA does its regulatory work posits 90 days for this review. So OIRA is really doing a pretty quick triage on the agency's analysis Um, and the the levels of scrutiny for that cost-benefit analysis shift depending on the economic significance of the rule. So for rules that are going to have an impact of over $100 million in any one year, um, OIRA takes a closer look, and that executive order that I mentioned calls on agencies to do more granular analysis than they would for a smaller rule. So that informs the the stringency, I suppose, the the depth of the analysis that the agency prepares and therefore also influences the depth of what OIRA reviews uh, when the agency submits it to them.
0: So, I mean, what effect does OIRA review and advice have on the legitimacy of agency action, especially if a regulation comes under, for example, judicial review?
1: Great question. Um, And I think it it checks. the, the way to think about that question is to think about those three hats that I mentioned earlier. So OIRA is doing its technical review of the agency analysis, and certainly in the rise of with the rise of judicial review of agency regulatory analysis, the thinking is that OIRA, or at least my thinking, is that Owira review helps agencies produce higher quality regulatory analysis that will help them cross the bar. Um, Some folks have studied this before, too. I cite a number of um, the the more quantitative studies in my draft, uh, looking at the impact of a wire review on agency analysis, showing that it does generally increase the quality um, of agency analysis. Um, you can also think about legitimacy benefits from that interagency review that I mentioned, too, the idea that, you know, a coordinated government um, is working together better on behalf of the American people rather than each agency pursuing its equities separately. Um, and then, of course, the White House review, you can have different views on the role of the president in policymaking. Uh, White House review that OIRA coordinates certainly serves to ensure a nexus between the president and the executive branch agencies, you know, um, in terms of accountability and making sure that, um, you know, the president is able to see see his vision implemented in agency processes.
0: So do you get the impression that when courts see... OIRA kind of sign-off on agency regulatory action, they're more likely to find that the regulation is valid than if they don't see that kind of sign-off? Is it like a sort of like stamp of approval, as it were? It's such
1: an interesting question. There was actually, um, there's a, a professor, Catherine Sharkey, who has suggested that it should be it should be treated that way by the courts and that um, whether OIRA reviews an agency's rule shouldn't, should mean that that rule is entitled to more or less deference uh, depending on whether it's gone through OIRA review, um, which is a really interesting proposal. You, you don't see judges actually mention the role of OIRA when they're reviewing agency rules. So if they're taking notice of it, they are doing so in the background. Um, I think it's more likely that what the courts are doing is they're just considering the quality of analysis on its face and whether OIRA reviewed it or not um, is sort of the lurking variable behind, behind the quality of the review.
0: So, I mean, is the kind of review that OIRA does qualitatively different in important ways than the kinds of review that agencies might do on their own?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, OIRA is positioned, because it's so small, because it's covering such a broad swath of domestic policy, you know, OIRA is positioned to observe, you know, cutting-edge methods. Um you know, analytical approaches that it can then share with other agencies too. So there are a lot of challenges agencies face in estimating effects. I mean, seeing into the future is notoriously difficult, right? I'm no better at it than anyone else. But different agencies have different techniques they've brought to bear in terms of estimating the potential effects of their policy changes. And so there's a cross-pollination benefit from working within an office like OIRA um just because you know both because the office is so small and because they see so much there is an opportunity to really share best practices across agencies
0: so in your paper you kind of talk among other things about the difference between independent agencies and and, and I don't know I guess like would it would be like regular agencies I'm not I'm not really sure like what exactly is an independent agency what makes an agency independent and how, how do we distinguish independent agencies from other kinds of agencies
1: well, this is the big question, right? And this there's a lot of ink that's been spilled on this. I mean, as soon as you start looking into the definition of an independent agency, you see, you know, incredibly capable scholar after incredibly capable scholar just being stymied in finding the line between independent agencies and non-independent agencies. Um, so it's a really interesting set of scholarship to dig into because it just seems like something we should have the answer to, right? Is the agency independent or not? But actually you have to consider quite questions like, who are they independent from? Um, That's sort of a really good starting point. That's a contribution from Professor Rachel Barkow. Um, You can be independent both from the president and potentially from Congress. Um, So (laughs) that's a good starting point. Um, Different features of independent agencies are designed to release agencies from different forms of control. Um, and as soon as you start looking into the different qualities of these agencies, you can see that they simp- there simply is not, you know, a very distinct category of agencies that are quote independent, and a very distinct category of agencies that are not. It's actually much more nuanced than it is categorical, and that's especially um, an important observation. Because if there are any policies out there that hinge on whether an agency is independent or not, that is, I think, a flawed policy uh, because it it is relying on the concept that independence is a binary state. You either are or you aren't. And when you look more closely at how agency independence works, it's actually a lot more complicated than that.
0: Well, I mean, what's the purpose of having... An independent agency in the first place and sort of what features might we look to to determine whether or not a particular agency is or isn't independent, I guess, in a particular context or in a particular fashion?
1: Yeah, I mean the great example, really easy to sort of grasp, is is the Fed and its role of setting interest rates. Um, you know, here you have something where, you know, the short term political implications of how the Fed sets interest rates, you know, obviously is something that you would you would want to firewall off from political influence. Um, if, for example, it was the president's call, what to do with interest. Inter, excuse me, interest rates, then you could understand how short-term political considerations would play really directly into what the Fed does. Um, And so you can think of independence as inserting a layer of insulation between the policymaker, in this case, um, the Fed, and the president for purposes of preserving the quality of the decision-making that the agency is doing, that the policymaker is doing. So that's the theory behind agency independence. I would say, I mean, in my view, the Fed's role with interest rates is probably the clearest way to observe the benefits of that. Um, When you start talking about other policymaking functions, one of the things that emerges is that the regulations that say the Federal Communications Commission or the Federal Trade Commission promulgate, have the same weight and regulate in very much the same ways as other agencies that are more directly overseen by the president. And so you get into this sort of strange situation where you have sets of products and sets of services that are regulated by an independent regulator and sets of products and services that aren't. And it's really hard to tell, you know, a reasoned it's hard to draw a reasoned line between, you know, why, why pharmaceuticals, for example, should be regulated by a regulator that's subject um, to the president while, you know, cell phones aren't. Um, so it's just, it's just an interesting, you know, once you start looking at the product categories and service categories and who their regulator is, there's a certain amount of ambiguity that is revealed that it's really hard to defend on the merits in terms of what the, what the products are and what the regulations are that are being applied to them.
0: Well, so what's OIRA's role in relation to agencies that are typically categorized as independent as compared to its role in relationship to agencies that aren't? I mean, does that distinction matter for the purpose of OIRA review?
1: It does. There is a carve out in the executive order that I mentioned earlier that covers you know, what OIRA OIRA does with rules, that carve-out exempts the independent regulatory agencies, that's a term of art, independent regulatory agencies, from OIRA review. So that's a set of just over a dozen specific agencies that um, that, that executive order references that set those agencies aside, and they are allowed to promulgate the rules without first coming into AWIRA um, for that type of review.
0: Well, so how does the lack then of kind of the OIRA review requirement affect independent agencies? I mean, on one level it seems like it might be kind of liberating in the sense that they have more like leeway to do what they want. Are there downsides to not getting that kind of review?
1: Yeah. I mean, sort of thinking through those three those three hats that OIRA wears again. Um you know, in terms of the technical assistance that OIRA can provide on best practices for regulatory analysis itself. you know these agencies have been firewalled off from that technical expertise in part because I think they intuit and quite reasonably that to work with AWIRA is basically to forfeit their independence. Um, now, hopefully, we can we can cover why I don't think that that's entirely true anymore. But certainly, up until recently, it would be a pretty reasonable view for the independent agency to have to think that you know working with AWIRA is not going to be good for their um, decision making independence. Um, some agencies also. Benefit from the OIRA review process because it allows them to get high-level input and buy-in into the regulatory proposals. In um, that White House check doesn't necessarily mean that the agency's preferences are overruled by the White House. It can be that the White House is supportive of what the agency is doing and therefore helps provide the agency with uh, political support once the, the rulemaking is out. Um, in the public's eye and then of course that third that third hat of interagency review this is a sort of intragovernmental peer review where you have people who have relevant expertise but just th- that expertise happens to not be housed in that in the you know the, the drafting agency so this serves as a formal way to check in with colleagues from other agencies. Um, that might have very legitimate views and reactions to things that, you know, the the drafting agency simply, you know, wasn't aware of, or, um, you know, chose to not focus on because they were focused on their own, their own equities.
0: Why do you think then that independent agencies should be more solicitous of OIRA review? I mean, especially if there were times in the past when maybe that would have struck them as more worrisome. Like what's changed and how would they potentially benefit from OIRA review?
1: Yeah. So two, two changes, which I think of as sort of tectonic changes in this area, it's sort of just environmental changes that, that I think should a- affect the calculus for independent agencies going forward. One is what we mentioned earlier about courts taking a much closer look now than they used to at the agency's regulatory analysis. And I use that term rather than at the cost-benefit analysis of an agency because, you know, really what you're looking at is the, the full set of the agency's justifications. And by justification, I don't mean just their legal or statutory Justification, but their policy arguments, their weighing of the evidence, how they muster their argument for what it is that they're proposing to do in the policy area. Um, so courts are looking more closely at that. This is an evolution over maybe the last 10 years. Um, so that's one thing. You know, the agencies are subject to a greater amount of scrutiny. And the idea is that OIRA review can help them survive that scrutiny. Um, Second, there was a a memorandum of agreement that OIRA negotiated a couple of years ago with the Internal Revenue Service that tailored OIRA's review to the specifics of IRS. Um, This was unexpected, certainly, when you think about... you think about IRS being inside of a cabinet agency, right, inside of the Treasury Department, it is somewhat surprising that OIRA would be willing to shorten its review times and come up with a special dispute resolution process, for example, for IRS, which is not a step that it takes for other agencies. There aren't very many formal agreements like this between OIRA and, you know, specific agencies. So to me, that signal... Um, that signals a measure of flexibility that I don't think the uh, was understood before. I don't know if it existed before, but it certainly is a very public signal that a wire review is more flexible than we might have thought. And to me, this opens the door for negotiation that um, that sign of flexibility is something that if, if an independent agency wants more technical assistance for its regulatory analysis that perhaps the agency could negotiate with OIRA to come up with some sort of form of review that would allow the agency to retain um, the right amount of decisional authority, as well as get the benefit of the technical review and the interagency review that I mentioned earlier.
0: Well, so in relation to that, in in your paper, you note that other scholars have sort of suggested a sort of full-blown OIRA review of all independent agency action. Like, why do you think that is? And why do you think that's not really the route to go? Is it like a practical question or a formal question or kind of a reality-based question? Like, why why shouldn't we just go full hog on OIRA reviewing everything? And, you know, are there... Are there reasons why we think that might not be the best approach? Yeah,
1: and there are folks that certainly are in the full hog category, right, who who kind of Object to the idea of an agency being independent at all from the president. Um, the Constitution, of course, doesn't have a fourth branch called the independent agencies, right? We just have the executive branch. And there used to be an argument that the independent agencies were really an arm of Congress. Um, that, that argument has fallen away. They're pretty much understood to be somehow adjacent to the executive branch, but not entirely you know, within it um, so there's folks you know particularly who have a more formalist view who just really object to the possibility that there can be an independent agency that you know they all must be uh, part of the executive branch and therefore you know subject to the president's uh, review I, I tend to think that you know Congress gave these agencies certain features meaning you know protecting their heads from removal. Um, you know, giving their boards a fixed term, meaning they have to serve for a certain number of years. Um, and those certain number of years might interfere with any one president's ability to hire or fire. Um, and then all kinds of other features. Congress Congress acted to give those agencies these features in that um, there is probably a way to honor those features and honor that intent without completely Um, firewalling the independent agency off from executive branch review. And what you see when you look at the hundreds of independent agencies that are out there is you see that certain agencies are imbued with more of these features, and these features arguably have different amounts of weight and insulation that they provide. And what you see is a really rich, if I may use the word tapestry, of different configurations of agencies out there, That variation in the way those agencies are structured, to me, suggests that something like this, where the outcome is negotiated between um, the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA, and the independent agency, could result in a set of agreements that is unique to those features that Congress gave the agency and doesn't... um, read too much into those features either, that it sort of right sizes review for the independent agencies, what I'm calling bespoke regulatory review.
0: Yeah. So I I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit in practice, because you point to a couple examples where agencies have sort of In effect, requested OIRA review on their own terms. Like, what did that look like? How might other agencies do the same thing? And do you see that as being like a viable path for future kind of OIRA independent agency collaboration?
1: Yeah. OIRA previously negotiated uh, an agreement with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and that agreement is a really interesting example of a negotiated arrangement between OIRA and an independent regulatory agency, which CFTC is. Um, so that MOU really keeps OIRA at arm's length. It basically says CFTC can call OIRA, um, but when it does, you know, that doesn't mean CFTC is opting in to that full OIRA review that I described earlier. It's very much an arm's length technical assistance role. It's CFTC's choice to initiate and whether to, you know, accept and adopt any of OIRA's um, feedback so that's one model. That's a very light touch model. Um, my own personal view is that is that the um, for for OIRA review to have you know maximum benefits to an agency that that configuration is is too light a touch um, that it doesn't signal quite enough commitment on the independent agency's part to really make and implement some of the changes that a wire review might suggest. So if you put yourself in the shoes of a regulator, which will be more or less easy for you to do, um, they face incentives just like the rest of us do. They may have been working on their rule for years, and they might be quite convinced that their regulatory approach is the right way to go. After all, they know their markets, they know their regulations, they are expert in many ways. Um, So A wire review comes at the end of an agency's regulatory process. Um, They're basically ready, the agency's ready to take that rule and make it public. Um, So if in the course of review, something comes up that would suggest that the agency needs to go back to the drawing board and say, come up with additional alternatives or different stringency levels or somehow reconfigure the rule in order to be responsive to the analysis, Um, there may be resistance to making changes like that because, as I say, the agency faces incentives to get that rule out sooner rather than later. So my view is that something that is this arm's length technical assistance arrangement um, certainly has been shown in the case of CFTC to have improved the analysis incrementally. Uh, My own view is that a more intense relationship between OIRA and the independent agency will lead to higher quality regulatory analysis more rapidly than that light touch technical assistance model.
0: Well, so Bridget, in, in closing, I have to say I was really taken with your sort of Contextual discussion of agency independence and sort of how we ought to think about independence in relation to agencies. And I was wondering if you could briefly reflect on OIRA itself. I mean, is OIRA an independent agency in any sense? And, you know, if so, what elements might kind of lead us contextually to think about it as independent?
1: Hmm. I mean, I'll return, I suppose, for one final time to the three hats, because I think those three, those three very different roles that OIRA plays, you know, it's interesting to think about them through the lens that you offer me. Um, I think OIRA interagency review, right, where it's sending documents to other agencies with um, with their own substantive views they're, you know, OIRA really. Acting as as a as a touch point, as a communication tool for other agencies to engage with each other, um, so that that doesn't imbue itself necessarily with too much independence, except for that, you know, OIRA is doing its best to navigate those any sort of conflicts that that arise, and so OIRA can sort of position itself between two agencies that are having a disagreement and try to help them negotiate. Um, Some sort of some sort of um, compromise uh, when appropriate. Um, And in terms of White House review, you know, OIRA is in many times just an agent for others within the White House who have policy views about the rule. So I wouldn't call them independent as they exercise that function. Um, and in terms of that, the technical review, you know, looking at the regulatory analysis there, that's probably closest to, you know, OIRA's main bailiwick, right? That's its unique value add as opposed to sharing you know, sharing agency materials with other agencies and other entities in the White House. So that's the area where I think OIRA's contribution is most unique compared to the contributions of other reviewers, um, so I guess, suppose I wouldn't call that independence so much, but it's certainly an area of unique technical expertise um, that's very much a feature of OIRA review as it functions today.
0: Well, Bridget, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, really enjoyed reading your paper and talking to you about it. And I certainly hope that we see more uh, bespoke OIRA review in the future.
1: Thanks, Brian. I appreciate so much being able to be here with you today.
2: I heard you liked it, the LeBron book, but you read it and it felt good. I love it. It's a nice book. I love it. I love it. I knew you'd be excited. I love it. it. I'm ready to record it when I get the time. Yeah. Oh, there's some great stuff in there. And I thought about... Well, uh, it's you know, it's like his old philosophy about, you know, spiritual things. But you can tell it's the matured, well-traveled, seen-it-all Gibran. Yeah. See, he lived in New York City for a long time. And a lot of the stuff he wrote in New York, obviously, was because, and he had some, I don't know what kind of experience he had with the church or a priest, but, boy, he's down on the priest in the, in the Catholic Church. Uh Oh, still spiritual. He didn't mention, uh, he didn't mention Catholic Church. He just mentioned priest, and he talked about the, all he talked about really was hypocrisy. You know, like this priest will will. Uh, well, he talked about what you know priests and preachers do sometimes. You know, they get worldly, and they fall from grace, and. Uh, and uh, then he's talking about all the sins of the priest. And then, but on Sunday morning they'll pat you on the head and say, "God bless you, my child." You know, that kind of thing. But then he, he had two chapters that I thought when I started reading them, this is not for me to read because it was about his love of Lebanon. But then I got to, I got to going further, and it's so beautiful. And, he, and there's a chapter called Your Lebanon and My Lebanon, and he's talking about the political, the war. And all I mean even in the fifties that those those wars were going on. And he talked then he talked about the land and how the land and the people would overcome. And it's so beautiful, man. Well, I thought was interesting it is knowing the rioters, <coughs> that there'd be such a book that never came out. Isn't it? It's terrific. Isn't it? It's terrific. That's I've got it with me. Cool. I was gonna read it again. Great. When you're done, I check it out. I'll bring it tomorrow night.